Hey, this is episode 211, and today we're chatting about why your dog should be eating less carbs, how to do it, why more people don't do it, potential links between dog heart disease and grain-free pet foods, and so much more. Our guest today is Daniel Skuloff, who's the founder and CEO of Keto Natural Pet Foods, maker of the world's first line of low-carbohydrate ketogenic dry pet food products. He is an entrepreneur and scientist writer with a focus on exposing the conflicts of interest, bad faith, and shoddy science responsible for the chronic disease epidemics killing millions of pets every year. His 2016 book, Dogs, Dog Food, and Dogma, has been called the most rigorous and probing canine nutrition book ever written. Okay, so you guys know, and if you don't, I will tell you, I have three beautiful, amazing, amazing dogs who continue to challenge me as a human. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard. Three dogs is too many dogs living on a sailboat. I will tell you this. But Lexi, our German Shepherd, who is 17, she is 17 years old. This dog is amazing. She's never been on grain-free food because she would rather eat tree bark than grain-free food. Not kidding. When she was a puppy, we got her when she was four. We rescued her Um, when she... When she was four, we put her on this quote unquote special diet and um, we put the food down. We were camping. It was the first time she tried it and she started eating a tree. Like actually she refused to eat for days. We had to like go to the local store. We were like in the middle of nowhere and grab some random dog food to give her until we got home. And that was the last time we put her on special crazy food. Now, um, then we got pebbles a year later because our German shepherd Lexi kept eating my shoes and I wasn't okay with that. And so I got her a chew plaything. I'm totally kidding, guys. We didn't actually get our Pomeranian so that Lexi could chew her, but they definitely got along and Lexi stopped eating all my shoes. Um, So Pebbles, she is 11 years old. She was actually recently diagnosed with heart disease um, and that's been really hard to watch a little thing that I love so much struggling and um, she had her first heart attack at the end of October, after she and I had gone for a really long walk, she had like a little episode. I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe it was a seizure, but her eyes weren't shaking or anything. And it very much looked like a heart attack. So she continued to have them. Then it was two a day and then three a day and four a day. And I called the vet um, three days later. And yeah, I should have gone to the vet sooner. But honestly, you know how it is when you are a dog mom of three dogs, even regular humans after the third kid, you're like, ah, no blood, it's fine. And also money is a big factor and we don't have health insurance for our dogs or us. So we have to be very mindful. Um, So judge me, it's fine. And um, so we went to emergency. They said she was stable. Everything was fine. They gave her an IV. It was good. So we went to the vet the next day, ran a bunch of tests, like so many tests all the cardiac things and it came back that she had an enlarged heart it was quite large I was blown away with how large her heart is which is pushing up against her lungs and that's why she has these episodes because she can't breathe and her lungs get crushed by her heart Um, and it's this horrible noise so when this happens she just can't breathe and she passes out and gets really really scared and she's making these horrible noises it is it is horrible to watch it's horrible to hear it is like it is horrible. So she has had this condition now for a month. It's gotten immensely, immensely better. Like it is night and day better. Um, she's maybe having an episode every week. Now at this point, Kevin and I have been prescribed a bunch of medications. We've chosen not to medicate. And that is a decision that we 
really struggled with for a long time, but I've been using holistic practices. Yes, I am one of those parents that just doesn't want to use medicine if I don't have to. And we've been incorporating many of the things that Daniel says, and it's been quite helpful throughout this process, um, including giving her more omega fats, which I got quite lenient at a couple of years ago and shouldn't have. So we have pebbles and then we have coconut, our Dilberman who probably loves too much, but will take all the love we can get. And she is almost three. I can't even believe it. So if you have a dog at home or you have friends that have dogs and they love them very much, which all dogs should be loved dearly, um, share this episode with them. I've definitely learned a lot. Um, I've tried not to feel guilty about quote unquote the mistakes I've made because all parents are going to make mistakes. I think Daniel's episode today is really, really great. It's a mixture of a bunch of good things and I think you're really going to love it. If you have questions about today's content, you can go to healthfulpursuit.com slash contact and ask me. You can also catch up on previous podcast episodes and grab the links and resources from today's episode by going to keto diet podcast.com. And last but certainly not least, I am starting a new podcast. The first episode is live right now. You can search for Love Rebel on your favorite podcast player. New episodes are coming at you in 2020, but you'll want to subscribe today so you don't miss any episodes. And my intention with Love Rebel is to share more of the love, share how I'm seeing love in everyday experiences, how I am loving on myself, on my life, showing gratitude, working with different practices. And I've started sharing a little bit of that on the Keto Diet Podcast, but I really want to keep the Keto Diet Podcast, the Keto Diet Podcast. So I wanted to start up a new show where I can get a little bit more personal with y'all chat about love and sex and sexuality and a bunch of really, really cool things that I have been really interested in for a very long time. And I'm finally ready to share this part of myself. So again, that is love rebel. The first episode is there for you and I will see you in 2020 for more. Oh, and I forgot before Daniel takes over the show for today and tomorrow only now this expires on the 5th. That is tomorrow at 1159 Pacific. You can use the code CYBERMEALS to get 40% all of my keto meal plan programs. This will deliver you a keto meal plan every day for an entire year to your inbox with a shopping list and everything and recipes. And all you got to do is make the food super simple. And if you get a one-year plan, you're going to get a free copy of my keto holiday cookbook. Oh, there are pie recipes in there that are so delicious. I make them every year. So you can go to healthfulpursuit.com slash balanced keto. And if you're unsure of the links, just check out today's show notes for all the details. Again, that's healthfulpursuit.com slash balanced keto. Use the code cyber meals. And when you sign up for one year, you get the keto holiday cookbook. Okay, let's get to Daniel's takeover because it's so awesome. Hey, I'm Leanne Vogel, and you're listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. I've put together a free 21-page guide on achieving weight loss on your keto diet if nothing is working. Grab your free guide at ketoforwomen.com to get the steps you need to overcome the hurdles standing in your way. Thanks so much for listening, and let's get started with the show. Greetings, and welcome to the Keto Diet Podcast. My name is Daniel Shuloff. I'm the author of a book called Dogs, Dog Food, and Dogma, and I'm the founder of a company that's called Keto Natural Pet Foods, and I'm taking over the podcast today. Leanne was good enough to invite me to appear, and I jumped at the opportunity, and um, I'm hopeful that you uh, will like 
the content that I've got for you, I think you should stick around. And the reason for that is because while there are like, you know, dozens or hundreds of folks who write and talk and do lots of interesting things concerning human nutritional science topics with a focus on carbohydrate restriction and, and keto diets, I'm basically you know, the only guy, one of very few people in the world who's conversant in the veterinary side of this issue, the role that carbohydrate restriction plays in optimizing the health and well-being of dogs and cats. So if that's a subject that you'd like to learn more about, I think you should stick around and you'll find the next 60 minutes or so quite interesting. So why am I one of only very few people who spends any serious amount of time looking into these subjects? That's something that I'll get into over the course of the next 60 minutes. Um, but let me give you an overview first of kind of how the, uh, the material that I'm going to present um, is going to break down. Basically, after I give you a little overview of who I am, I'm going to kind of talk about two things generally. The first is talking about carbohydrate restriction directly, talking about why a pet owner should consider restricting carbohydrate intake for their uh, dogs and cats, how to do that, like what as a realistic matter, if you, you decide that you want to do that, what do you do in the pet food market today? And then why don't you hear more about this? Like, I hope that you'll agree with me that the evidentiary case I'm going to outline is really persuasive. To me, it's a no-brainer. Like Every pet owner should be way invested in this topic. But you hear hardly nothing about it. Uh, so why is that? I'll, I'll kind of spend some time talking about that as well. I'm going to spend the second half of the podcast talking about a slightly different topic where I've got some really um, unique things to say. That topic is the, um, the potential links between a rare canine heart disease called dilated cardiomyopathy and grain-free pet foods. It's a subject that's been in the news a lot over the past year. I've done some, I'm like basically the only person in the world who's done this kind of cluster of investigatory uh, things pertaining to the topic. And I think you'll find a lot of what I have to say interesting. I'm hope you'll, I hope that by the time I'm done uh, with this talk, You'll have a, a really um, informed perspective on the nature of this kind of ongoing issue, this ongoing what amounts to a controversy. So anyway, who am I and why should you listen to me? Basically, the, the, the takeaway, the short answer there is that I'm a charlatan with a huge financial conflict of interest. So you should not just like listen to my qualifications and say, therefore, we agree with what this guy has to say. I think instead what you should do is approach what I'm telling you with a really skeptical um, eye. And rather than just accepting it as truthful, accepting it as gospel, you should consider the evidentiary resources that um, inform my perspectives and which I'm going to outline for you. I'll tell you where you can find them. I'll tell you where you can read more about them. And, you know, you can reach your own conclusions about what you think those materials say and whether they're persuasive or not to you. So more specifically, here's my story. In 2011, I had been practicing law for about six years. I, uh, by education and formal training, I'm a commercial litigator, an intellectual property attorney who basically fight, used to fight on behalf of big corporations um, on like really high level international intellectual property disputes. 
It's a great job, but it's also a really demanding one. Um, it's just, there's just more time and stress than I felt good about. And so while I was working, I set up a side business and the side business was I called Varsity Pets. It's this like really small company that sells a really niche kind of dog toy. Um, it's basically this like herding ball that lets dogs with herding instincts and kind of neuroticism exercise themselves outdoors without your involvement. So you don't have to take the dog for a walk or kind of play fetch. You could just put the dog out there with one of these our varsity balls and they basically drive themselves nuts about it. I started doing that and I found that it was making some money and it was doing so in like a really automated fashion, basically. It's like we were selling them over the internet and I would just use online advertising to reach customers. And, um, you know, they place an order through my website and that would contact our warehouse and they'd send the order out. And at the end of the day, it was spitting out enough income where, I, you know, while I wasn't making anywhere near as much money as I was making as an attorney, I was doing okay. And so I decided to do it full time. I quit my job and I started just working on varsity pets full time. And um, because it was so automated, I had like tons of extra time on my hands. And I was kind of trying to think about how to develop this little rinky dink niche dog food, uh, dog toy company. And one thing that I got interested in is looking into the evidentiary record concerning exercise and dogs and cats. We have this like athletics brand that we attach to the company and exercise was kind of the core of, of like what we were trying to provide to consumers. And so I started like researching, looking into that topic. And then one of the first things you come upon if you start looking into that is you'll find these crazy facts about the commonality of obesity in dogs and cats in the Western world. And basically the, the, those facts can be summarized like this. More than half of the dogs and cats in the United States today are either overweight or obese. So if you pick one of these animals at random, you're more likely than not going to find one that's overweight or obese. It's more common to be overweight than it is to be a healthy weight if you're a dog or a cat. The second high level fact about this that'll just blow your mind is that there's like basically the best research, experimental research that exists today on the link between obesity and lifespan in dogs and cats basically says that being just like moderately overweight, so not like colossally obese, but just like a dog where, you know, if somebody said, made a comment to the dog park, you'd say, oh, ha ha, yeah, he's got to lose a few pounds. That dog, that, that condition is worse for that dog than a lifetime of smoking is for a person. So, you know, think about the, the quintessential example of a lifelong smoker and what that's likely to do to that person's expected lifespan and likelihood of developing chronic disease. That's not as bad as what, uh, you know, the typical overweight dog has uh, in front of him. It's a really seriously bad condition, and yet it's insanely common. And me sitting and, and learning these facts for the first time, I was kind of had my mind blown by that. I love my... A dog. I couldn't imagine the idea of turning him into a lifelong smoker. And I just couldn't imagine that other pet owners were doing the same thing, you know, that, that we were just allowing this to happen when we could love, you know, even though we love these animals so much. And so I started going down the rabbit hole, which as I'm sure plenty, of you know, is always a dangerous thing to do. And in my case, it basically completely changed my life. 
I learned over the course of going down that rabbit hole that there's much more than what meets the eyes um, when it comes to America's pet obesity epidemic. And so I spent the next four years of my life working on a book explaining what that evidence really says. The book was published in 2016 and it's called Dogs, Dog Food and Dogma. It's like this massive, serious, you know, it's like 400 pages long. The notes and sources and annotations run more than 50 pages just by themselves. And basically, the core theses are twofold. The first is that contrary to the conventional wisdom, the real cause of the obesity epidemic in dogs and cats is the overconsumption of dietary carbohydrate. That really, that's where, that's the fundamental, trace it all back cause of the problem. And that if we all got rid of dietary carbs and got them out of the diets of our dogs and cats, we wouldn't have an obesity problem whatsoever. It's point number one. Point number two is that problems associated with body condition are even more common than we've been led to believe. That really, dogs ought to be even leaner than we've been told by our veterinarians if we want them to live as long as possible. So like I said, I published this book in 2016 and I was the only person, you know, if you go to your library, you'll find all these resources concerning human keto diets. I'm the only person that's written anything like this in the pet food space. And as I was working on the book, I was like astounded by that fact and I couldn't really understand why it was so. Except, uh, you know, over the course of writing, I basically had to learn a whole lot about the curricula that are being used at America's 28 accredited veterinary schools. And I came to learn the um, massive role that three, you know, of America's largest companies play in shaping the body of knowledge that's taught to rising veterinarians, that's taught to veterinarians in continuing education contexts after they graduate. You know, what's in the textbooks, all this substantive material that's being put in front of our vets is basically shaped to a massive degree by three companies, Nestle Purina Pet Care, Mars Pet Care, and Hills Pet Nutrition. And all of these companies rely as heavily on dietary starch to make their products as cigarette manufacturers rely on tobacco. The backbone of their business is carbohydrate. They make kibble style products, the kind of scoop and serve dry pet foods that we're all really familiar with. And a key ingredient of that kind of product is starch. You can't make it really without putting heavy amount of starch in there or so folks thought. And uh, sorry if anyone can hear my dogs barking at our neighbor in the background. So basically because these companies need to protect the reputation of the dietary carbohydrate, they shape the, uh, the curricula to a massive degree. They literally write the textbooks. They literally own the labs that put out the experimental research. They have funding, back channel funding connections to every major scientific veterinary nutrition, uh, veterinary science journal. They have back channel financial conflicts of interest with essentially 60% of the veterinary nutritionists practicing in America today. And basically their fingerprints are all over the issue. And so it's a tale as old as time, basically, the, what, what our veterinarians are being taught kind of isn't what's in the um, real scientific record. So what does, that, what does that scientific record actually say concerning um, the links between carbohydrate intake and health for dogs and cats? 
what it basically does is it boils down to there are kind of four reasons why a thoughtful, conscientious pet owner ought to consider restricting carbohydrate intake for their dog or their cat. The first of these is, is the one that I've already been talking about, the, the issue of body composition. So there is an abundant, you know, there are at least six different studies that already exist that you can find if you just go on to PubMed yourself or if you buy my book and look at the, the um, sources that basically represent isocaloric studies. So studies where a group of dogs or cats got the same diet every day for a period of time, and then another group got a diet that contained the exact same number of calories, but a different allocation, a nutritional allocation. They got essentially more protein and less carbohydrate, while, one, while the other group got more carbohydrate, less protein, but the exact same number of calories. And every time this experiment has been done, the same outcome is found. And that's basically that the high carbohydrate group gets considerably uh, materially fatter than the other group. The, um, these results kind of like they, the, the severity of them shift depending on the experiment, but kind of like the best, biggest, most recent one is 2006, 39 dogs, which is a big group as these things go, because they're keeping all these animals under lock and key. It's not like they're free living. These are animals in like a lab setting. They give one group a high carbohydrate diet, the other group the same amount of calories on a low carbohydrate diet. Eight weeks later, the high carbohydrate dogs basically have, excuse me, the low carbohydrate dogs have lost six times as much weight as the high carbohydrate dogs, 600% more. So that gives you a, 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 a um, glimpse into the, like, the extent to which this issue influences the body condition of dogs and cats. Um, anybody who's listening to this is already probably familiar with you know, what I'll call the, the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. This notion that dietary carbs become glucose as they enter, as they exit the diet, the um, digestive tract. Glucose caught, is toxic if found in the bloodstream in high quantities. Um, and so the body, the pancreas produced the hormone insulin, whose function is to drive glucose out of the bloodstream uh, into, among other places, fat cells, making fat cells become fatter. That same physiology that you've, you've heard about through writings from people like David Ludwig and Gary Taubes is in place in, in, in both dogs and cats. It functions the same exact kind of way. Carbs enter the, or leave the digestive tract as glucose in the same kind of way. The postprandial kind of hormonal response is exact in conceptual terms is exactly the same as in human beings. Pancreas produce insulin. Insulin's function is to drive the glucose places where it can be safely stored. One of those places is into fat tissue, making the fat tissue get bigger. So not only do we have a, an abundance of experimental evidence showing that high carbohydrate diets make dogs and cats fatter than equivalent calorie low carbohydrate diets we have an, a, a a you know a mechanism that explains why we're seeing those findings we know how it works two other things on this topic one is the physiology the kind of like mechanism that i just outlined this carbohydrate insulin model you'll find that in every leading veterinary nutrition textbook under the sun go to the kind of like physiology component of it You'll see this all outlined. This isn't controversial at all. If you ask your veterinarian about it, they'll, they'll tell you basically everything I just walked through with you. The second thing uh, to note is that 
while there is at least, you know, I've been able to find six different times where researchers have done isocaloric studies comparing carbohydrate intake with low carbohydrate intake there and, and found, uh, you know, essentially that high carbohydrate intake makes the animals fatter. There's literally zero studies that find the opposite that have, that have kind of used the same kind of experiment and come to the conclusion, nope, same amount of calories produces the same amount, the same kind of fatness outcome. It's all exactly the same. So you think given all that, that vets would be all over this, that this wouldn't even be, it wouldn't be a, a, a controversial subject at all, that we'd all just accept that this is kind of what the laws that govern body composition in dogs and cats. Well, that, that's not so. Quite to the contrary, if you read a veterinary nutrition textbook, what you will see endorsed in full is the um, calories in, calories out model. Every single one of them, they're kind of four main books that are used in each of the veterinary schools, one or the other. Every single one of them fully endorses calories in, calories out, doesn't discuss this body of literature at all, doesn't use the word insulin or glucose when talking about matters of obesity and body composition. You'll see it discussed when it, when it comes to hormones and metabolism, not at all linked to body composition. So, uh, and we, we've kind of talked about, I already mentioned why that's the case. Um, you, you can basically, uh, it's really not a, um, a difficult exercise to try to follow the money because like if you pick up, for instance, the leading veterinary text, uh, nutrition textbook, the one that's being used at the most veterinary schools in the United States right now, you pick the thing up, turn it over, on the back of it, there's a gold embossed uh, uh, imprint that says produced by Hills Pet Nutrition. They literally write textbooks, okay? And as I've said before, these guys will literally go out of business if the pet owning public believes that carbohydrate is unhealthy for dogs and cats. So they're very invested in kind of shaping that discourse. So you don't hear anything about it. But as I've highlighted before, obesity is incredibly bad for dogs and cats. And for the amount of time we all spend trying to kind of, you know, make good decisions for these, um, I don't know about you guys, my dogs are not incredibly intelligent. They are sweet animals and um, I love them with all my heart, but they're, you know, they're, they're not capable of making decisions in their own best interest. And so I've got to step in and do that for them. And I'm, you know, constantly trying to make the best decisions that I can to give them the good life that the, the best life that I can give them. This is one of the easiest things in the world, obesity. It's, a, it's absolutely mind blowing that 30 plus million dogs in the United States are overweight or obese. We could just take the cigarettes out of their mouth altogether. And uh, to my eyes, the best way to do that is to basically minimize carbohydrate as much as possible. Today's episode continues after this short message from one of my sponsors who make the show possible, plus give you some great deals on my favorite things. ButcherBox features 100% grass-fed and finished heritage-bred pork and organic free-range chicken. ButcherBox sends you high-quality, health-promoting meats directly to your door on dry ice and free shipping anywhere in the lower 48. ButcherBox makes committing to quality protein sources less expensive and more available to everyone. Their prices are hard to beat, and it's challenging to find a higher quality product anywhere in the USA. I've been using ButcherBox for years and love the convenience of a package showing up just when I need it, and their ground sausage is an absolute dream. 
ButcherBox has put together a super special deal for all listeners of the show. Order your first box and get a special gift plus an additional $20 off. Now, this special gift is so epic that I can't even mention it on the episode today. So you'll have to go to butcherbox.com slash keto diet to check out the deal plus get your $20 off your very first order. Again, that's butcherbox.com slash keto diet to check out the deal plus get $20 off your first order. If you're unsure of the link, simply check out today's show notes for all the details. Second reason you might want to uh, consider reducing the carbohydrate intake of your dog or cat, what you might want to call the naturalness argument. Um, I'm a big believer that mother nature in the form of the process of evolution via natural selection is uh, a really explanatory concept. You know, it's the one most powerful concept in biology. It helps to explain all kinds of outcomes about why all species are the way they are. And while in human beings, you know, we, we, the, things like the, the paleo diet have emerged as a modern day strategy for trying to address this reality, trying to kind of help modern day human beings structure their lives in a way that's consistent with their evolutionary heritage, that, that exercise for human beings can, is fraught with some like uncertainty. It's hard, you know, we don't have, it, it's hard to find at least modern day humans who are living the same lives that our genetic ancestors lived for, you know, hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of generations. Well, in the case of dogs and cats, you know, that, that isn't the reality. The very beginning of my book, I spent basically living with the folks at a place called the Yellowstone Wolf Project. Yellowstone Wolf Project is the premier institution in the United States for the study of wild gray wolves. That's important for how we think about the health of modern day dogs because uh, gray wolves and domestic dogs shared a single genetic answer. They basically tracked the same genetic uh, lineage for 99.9% of their evolution as a canine species. So for 99.9% of their time, they were exactly the same animals. Only within the past 20 to 100,000 years, there's a little bit of debate over the matter, have they branched into two different species. And so if you want to understand what it, what a dog's evolutionarily adaptive environment looks like, you can do that. You just got to go find the modern day wolves. They're still living the environment, the, the lifestyle that a, the, the domestic dog lived for, for thousands and thousands and thousands of generations. And so that's exactly what I did. I went up and, and hung out with the folks at the Yellowstone Wolf Project for a period of time. And so they'll tell you uh, plenty of things about how wolves get by and what their lives look like. But one of the first things they'll tell you is that their consumption of dietary carbohydrate is 0.0%. They literally never consume the stuff. Um, if you probe around the internet enough, you'll find uh, on occasion, at least I've found, some folks will try to argue that, the, um, that a wolf's typical diet includes some plant matter in the form of like berries and grasses that you might find in the... Um, belly of the prey that they chase down. This is, if you ask the biologists at the Yellowstone Wolf Project, who are like the most published folks on the planet concerning gray wolves, this is a myth. Effectively, if you come upon, they, they like kind of relayed this in anecdotal form to me, if you come upon a wolf kill, a prey, either you know a caribou or an elk or a moose that's been taken down by a pack of wolves and been consumed, right? They're all done with it and they've moved on. 
what you will find are kind of two things. They're really good at consuming the vast majority of the animal. If they've done a good job of consuming everything, really there are only two things that are typically left over. Um, they'll eat the hide, they'll eat you know, all the, the soft tissue, and they'll even consume many of the bones. A lot of the bones are breakable or kind of soft and can kind of be broken down into something that the animal can digest. So what you'll find is the large, largest bones, these kind of like you know big femur, leg bones, pelvises, things like that that the, the wolves just can't chew through, those are still there. And then you'll find the contents of the digestive organ of these animals, which is called the rumen. You'll find all this, this big honking wad of grass matter half digested in the rumen of the animal sitting amongst the bones. They literally consume the lining of the rumen, the wolves will, they'll take all that in, they leave the plant matter itself. So if you wanna feed, if you too believe that feeding your dog the um, way it's evolved to eat is a, is a sensible idea for reasons you can articulate or not, then you wanna reduce the animal's carbohydrate intake because wolves don't eat any carbohydrate. Um, in fact, one of the very few ways that dogs and wolves differ genetically, they're really similar genetically. They share more than 98% of their mitochondrial DNA. One of the very few ways that they differ is that dogs have evolved some adaptations that allow them to digest starch more effectively than wolves can. So this is basically functions at the saliva level. They produce this salivary enzyme called amylase that breaks down starch into individual glucose molecules. And they produce more of that stuff than wolves do. So, and you can probably guess, I mean, you know, it's, it's dangerous game to play like evolutionary, trying to do evolutionary expl explanations, but you can probably guess where this came from. You know, this is like, if we're talking about a species that diverged from its genetic ancestors 20,000 years ago, it just happens to coincide with um, the development of human agriculture. And you can just kind of imagine these animals that developed brains that make them more loving and less wild and fierce like a wolf um, also developed the ability to digest the starchy foods that these human beings that they were around were eating. But importantly, like don't take that, the fact that they, they've evolved the ability to digest starch isn't news to anyone. I mean like kibble, high starch kibble makes up 90% of the pet food market. We all know these animals can digest starch. I just mean to underscore the fact that like wolves can't even do that. And I also mean to unders underscore the fact that the debate about this is not whether the animal can digest it or not, it's whether they can do so without having all these crazy metabolic and hormonal changes take place. And that's the truth of the matter with that is they can't. They can digest it really effectively, but what happens when they do, their insulin levels spike, blood glucose uh, you know, goes up immediately, and then the insulin spikes and it drives the glucose into the fat tissue and has all these other uh, changes take place. Um, there's one other reason beyond it's being consistent with their evolutionary heritage and being really good for their body composition. There's one other kind of broad reason why you might want to reduce your animal's carbohydrate intake. And that's because there are um, several diseases other than obesity that have links one way or another to um, carbohydrate consumption. So the first one of these that's worth highlighting is the one about which there's no real argument in the veterinary community, likely because it's just kind of a, a rare condition, and that's epilepsy. One of the first line treatments in veterinary nutrition community for epilepsy is to basically put the animal on a ketogenic diet. That's 
matter of conventional wisdom. It's not uh, something that's subject to any great debate. Um, another one that's more or less that way, you can imagine, is diabetes. We see diabetes in dogs and cats. It's kind of the typology is a little different. There's not like a in, in dogs, at least there's not a type one and type two in, in the same way that there is in human beings. But essentially, the, the, you know, once the, the disease functions in a similar kind of way, basically the disease is characterized by an inability to produce insulin in, um, in quantities that can deal with likely uh, blood sugar spikes. So what's a great way to reduce the amount of blood sugar spikes and therefore the amount of insulin that's needed? Reduce carbohydrate intake to... Um, to zero if you can. There's a great, if you want resources on this, there's a great vet um, in Minnesota whose name is Travis Einardson, who's become famous based on, famous in, as these things go, for um, using zero carbohydrate diets to essentially reverse diabetes in cats. And I uh, urge all y'all to go check out his stuff. And then the last major disease with where there's an argument that carbohydrate restriction might help disease outcomes is cancer. So cancer, hugely popular chronic disease in dogs and cats. Something, it depends, you know, the numbers are kind of inescapable. If, you, if you've had a pet for your entire life, uh, if you've had pets throughout your entire life, surely you or someone you know has had a pet die from cancer. You know, it's the debate is kind of between one third and 40 percent of animals, things like numbers like that. Huge percentage of these animals um, will wind up getting cancer at some point in their lives. That's really unique in the animal world. There's a, a really compelling study that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association where uh, the researchers went to the San Diego Zoo and they looked at the zoo records going back all the way into the 1960s. And they looked up all these different species and they based, among other things, they looked at what their cause of death was. And the reason that th this is kind of a unique place to do this kind of work is like if you're looking at wild species and what, what their cause of death is, you're likely to have your data kind of confounded by the fact that they're living these like violent resource restricted lives. You know, wolves in Yellowstone don't live very long. They kill each other. They have like interspecies violence. They have vehicle strikes. There's limited resources. All these things kind of make it so that chronic diseases don't they don't they don't get old enough to develop chronic diseases often. Well, in zoo settings, that's not the case. They're fed by zookeepers. They aren't subject to the same kind of resources limitations. There's no vehicles and they more rarely, you know, engage in violence with each other. So these guys go and these folks go and look at what the cause of death is. And one of the things they look at is a commonality of cancer. They basically find no species where there's anything more than a single digit occurrence risk of, of cancer deaths in species. And it includes all manner of different kind of wolf and other wild canine species. So what the kind of take home there is that wild canines as raised in a zoo setting, so not confounded by issues of violence and resource limitation, only get cancer at like one, you know, one fifth, one sixth the rate that pet dogs and cats do. So there's something that's going on that's making the outcomes when it comes to these two species that are so genetically similar have really different outcomes when it comes to cancer. And there are plenty of folks out there who think that the most likely explanation is the high carbohydrate content of the diet of most um, pet dogs and cats. 
This, however, is not an issue on which there's the kind of rock solid evidentiary foundation that you see with regard to things like epilepsy and the body condition argument that I walked through before. There haven't been really solid lifelong studies where we've compared cancer incidence rates among dogs that eat high carbohydrate products and, and zero carbohydrate products. And the reason, you know, these are expensive studies that require monitoring the dog over the life of its, uh, over its entire life, many years. And so it's kind of an expensive endeavor. There are folks who are working on this kind of stuff, though. And that gets to one of the reasons why we believe that carbohydrate restriction might be at the root of the, the cancer epidemic. Basically, one of the kind of like important moving forces in this realm are the folks who are working at this Texas-based dog rescue institution called the Keto Pet Sanctuary. Um, the Keto Pet Sanctuary. And what they do is they basically take in dogs who have been diagnosed with cancer and they use metabolic therapies in connection with traditional cancer treatments in order to try to help these dogs deal with these difficult diseases. And one of the, as you can imagine from their name, one of the big things that they do is they put them on deeply ketogenic diets. They kind of, you know, put them on these therapeutically ketogenic diets that include calorie restriction, protein restriction, a lot of fat, and of course, almost no carbohydrate. These folks have been written about pretty extensively. They have oncologists who are on site, and if you poke around the internet, you'll find all kinds of resources about them. And if you go to academic conferences, you'll see that they're just beginning to put out some research. So hopefully, in the years that come, it'll be more than an anecdotal you know, piece of evidence that the Keto Pet Sanctuary can kind of contribute to the discourse surrounding cancer and carbohydrate restriction. There's also kind of a, a, an abundance of rodent studies that uh, do support the notion that carbohydrate restriction um, can improve cancer outcomes, at least in those species. And as I'm sure, you know, most people who are familiar with, uh, who are interested in keto diets are kind of familiar with the anti-cancer work that's being done by folks like Dom D'Agostino and Tom Seyfried, who basically have developed, you know, mechanistic theories that could explain why, you know, specifically this, the, the Warburg effect, the notion that cancer likes to use glucose for fuel um, more than other nutritional substrates. That theory might be used to explain why cancer and carbohydrate intake are so linked. Like I said, that's not a subject about which there's an ironclad body of evidence, but it's worth considering what, what is there to, you know, this is kind of like moving us to our next topic. It's like, if there are all these reasons, some with strong evidence, some with weak evidence for restricting carbohydrate intake, well, what's on the other side of the equation? What are the benefits of giving your dogs uh, carbohydrate? The answer to that is essentially that they all have to do with you and none of them have to do with the animal. There are these, the, the, the National Academy of Sciences has a committee, a pet food or a nutrition, uh, animal nutrition committee that basically every decade or so gets together and puts out this massive research compendium that spells out the nutritional need, the, the kind of state of the scientific record concerning all the various nutrients that might be included in pet food or not. And that stuff gets built into regulations that govern the sale of pet food in the United States. And so, you know, you'll, you'll, you could buy this thing, it costs $300, we can buy this, the nutrition requirements of dogs and cats, and it walks through. Well, if you give an animal this much protein, here's what's likely to happen. Here's what we, you know, here's how much of these various micronutrients they need. 
One thing you'll find there, you'll find it repeated, although not in any with any kind of loud voice in every veterinary nutrition textbook, carbohydrate, unlike protein, unlike fat, unlike all manner of vitamins and minerals, is not an essential nutrient for dogs and cats. You can take all the carbohydrate out of their diet and you don't expect any difference in outcome. There's absolutely no reason not to do it. So you'll hear from time to time, people who have who know just enough about this to be kind of dangerous will tell you things like, well, no, they need it for energy. This is not true, basically. Um, you, number one, you can see this from wolves, right? These animals spend their entire lives roaming. You know, they travel upwards of 10, 20 miles a day on an average, and they consume precisely zero carbohydrate. It's also the case that um, there's a whole body of experimental research that kind of bears this out. They put beagles and other animals, other dog uh, breeds, on treadmills, fed them zero carbohydrate diet, and seen what happens. None of them suggest that carbohydrate gives any kind of more energy. And the last place where you can really see this stuff borne out is in the case of sled dogs. Um, if you go speak to your neighborhood musher, they will tell you that the diet that is almost exclusively across the board in competitive sled dog racing fed to animals is a zero carbohydrate diet. They typically feed them a really high fat, high protein diet. And those animals are running 40, 50 miles a day for periods of weeks, and they don't need any carbohydrate. So it's kind of a a garbage argument. So basically, you've got all these arguments in favor of restricting, zero arguments on the other side, nutritional arguments on the other side of the equation, and and yet 90% of Americans are feeding their dogs high carbohydrate kibble. So the, re, the, the question becomes why? And one of the answers for this is that you don't have, at least till recently, you didn't have very good options. If you wanted to feed your dog a low carbohydrate diet, Basically, the only thing you could do is feed it a raw ingredient diet. So you can, you could, there are kind of, um, there are commercial products that are available where, where basically all meat products are sold either frozen or freeze dried. And, and, uh, you know, they don't feature carbohydrate as much. Carbohydrate, like I said before, is kind of the backbone of kibble. Just like flour is the backbone of bread, you need to use it to hold together the other ingredients in the dough. Same thing with kibble. If you don't use starch in it, it's really hard to get it to kind of stick together. And so most kibbles in the United States packed with carbohydrate. Raw products don't need that kind of uh, binding uh, because they're not being baked in the same way kibble is. And so they don't have carbohydrate, which makes them sound like a great choice. And they really are a great choice if you can, if they're a good fit for you in your home, in your lifestyle, because the reality is they're really expensive. They're typically... Uh, you know, one calorie of a commercial raw diet tends to be five to eight times as much as one calorie of fancy premium kibble. So if you've got a small dog, it's totally something your budget can probably deal with. The percentage-based increase just doesn't work out to be that, you know, doesn't work out to be too many dollars and cents. But if you have large dogs, it's a really big deal. And so sometimes folks can't afford it. I hope you're really enjoying today's episode. I'd love to see where you're listening from. Snap a pic and tag me at Healthful Pursuit or leave a review for the show on your favorite podcast player. It helps me out tremendously. Okay, back to the good stuff. Second reason that carbohydrate is so common in the diets of pets in the Western world is that it's easy to sneak them in there. Most kibble that until very recently, 
basically until my company came along and started trying to make kibble with as little carbohydrate as possible, the lowest carbohydrate kibbles you could find in the United States were like 25 to 30% carbohydrates. They're still kind of stuffed full of this stuff. It's still, you know, one of, if not the most common nutrient in the product. These are the best ones you could find. The garden variety stuff, the Purina Pro plans of the world, 50 plus percent carbohydrate with plenty of premium products being north of 60% carbohydrate. So the vast majority of the product is carbohydrate. But the US pet food regulations make it really easy for manufacturers to hide that uh, information. In fact, under the, the, the regulations that govern the sale of pet food in the United States, pet food manufacturers don't have to disclose to consumers the amount of carbohydrate that's in a product. So if you flip over a bag of pet food, just like you might flip over the back of a bag of chips and you flip over the back of the bag of chips and you see the, the USDA's nutrition facts panel and it walks through things like calories and blah, blah, blah. Well, the second line item is the amount of carbohydrate that's in there. I'll tell you exactly how much carb is in there, how that works out on a percentage base, uh, you know, to a typical American diet. That's not the case with, with pet food reg, uh, labeling. You've got to tell the consumer how much protein is in there. You've got to tell them the amount of calories that are in there. You don't have to say the first word about carbohydrate, which is really striking. And um, as a result, it's really easy to buy a product if you're a consumer thinking, okay, this, is a, this looks like a low carbohydrate thing. There's a wolf on the bag. It's uh, grain free. There's a big icon of a red X across the ear of corn. This should be the, um, the perfect thing for my dog. Uh, you know, in terms, it's, it's got to be all meat. Um, in reality, it's likely to be anything but. If you want to truly figure out the carbohydrate content of a, um, of a pet food product that hasn't told you directly, you can kind of go about doing it one of two ways. You can either get in touch with the manufacturer and just ask them directly because they know, trust me, I'm somebody who owns a pet food company, they know. The second way you can do it is you can try to um, calculate it yourself. They, uh, you, while you don't have to disclose carbohydrate intake, you do have to disclose the, like basically all, most of, <laughs> the majority of the other constituent parts of the product. And so by subtracting out the protein, the fat, the fiber, the moisture, and what's called the ash, those five constituent parts that are often disclosed as percentage bases, bases you can, the, the, the remainder that's left over is the, the carbohydrate content. So that's kind of the formula if you want to build from the ground up and figure out how much car carbohydrates in your dog's food. It's start with 100%, that's the whole product, subtract out one, protein, two, fat, three, fiber, four, moisture, five, ash, which is basically like mineral content, bone mineral content. Um, and what's left is carbohydrate. Yeah. So, but, but if you do, if you, you know, if a raw diet's not for you, you can't afford it, or you're worried about issues of contamination, you know, with those products, you're dealing with raw meat and you've got to keep it uh, refrigerated or frozen and you've got to disinfect things. It's going to go into your animal's bowl. The animal's going to go around licking you and your kids. You've got, you know, there are issues of, you know, just kind of managing bacterial pathogens that come as part of it. And if the, for either of those reasons, if it's not a good fit for you, I humbly submit that you should give um, my company, Keto Natural Pet Foods, a look. We make um, diet, we make kibble style products with less than 5% dietary carbohydrates. So 80% less than our best competitors. Um, 
you know, the other premium, like I said before, pet foods on the market, kibble style pet foods, are 25 to 30% carbohydrate, we're less than 5%. You can learn all, all, all kinds of stuff about us if you go to our website, ketonaturalpetfoods.com. I'm going to shift gears now and talk about the issue of DCM. This has almost nothing to do with all my work that I've done concerning carbohydrate and um, obesity. It has very little to do with my business either. But I am one of very few kind of like outsider people that have a sophisticated enough voice in the world of veterinary nutrition and kind of skeptical approach to the mainstream scientific conventional wisdom about veterinary nutritional matters that I got kind of tangled up in this subject. And now I'm basically the only person in the country who's kind of advocating for a very specific set of, of, of related facts pertaining to it. So what is the issue? The issue is this. In the summer of 2018, the FDA, um, who governs um, pet food, sale of pet food in the United States, came out with an announcement that, and it got covered in the New York Times and the Washington Post and all manner of big media outlets. And what they said was, we're beginning to investigate a potential link between this canine heart disease, this doggy heart disease called dilated cardiomyopathy and um, certain kinds of pet foods, specifically those feature that use lentils, legumes, peas, potatoes, non-grain ingredients in, in significant quantities. It sparked, like I said, plenty of media attention, public got into it right away. Basically, cardiomyopathy is a, is a you know, before the FDA makes this announcement, here's the state of that disease. It's a really serious one. It's one that absolutely can kill a dog. It's a really rare disease. Something like one in 10,000 or fewer animals will develop it. And it's one for which there are both genetic and nutritional causes that the veterinary community knows, knows about really well. There are certain breeds of dogs that are predisposed to it. And there's a kind of nutritional chain of events that can cause the disease as well. Um, so without going too deep into the weeds, it's basically this. Your dog's body will produce an amino acid called taurine. So long as you're feeding it enough of a few other amino acids, specifically cysteine and methionine. And pet food in the United States has to contain a certain amount of cysteine and methionine because your dog needs that to produce enough of this third amino acid, taurine. And if dog's got enough taurine in its body, its heart muscles develop appropriately and it doesn't develop cardiomyopathy. This is kind of the state of the veterinary nutritional wisdom circa summer 2018. If dog doesn't get enough cysteine and methionine, it might not make enough taurine. And it, as a result, it muscles, its uh, uh, cardiac muscles might develop in such a way that it develops this deadly disease, cardiomyopathy. You could treat it by supplementing the diet with taurine, giving the animal a lot of uh, supplemental exogenous taurine, just making sure that it takes in a bunch that's generally been shown to um, improve nutritionally mediated DCM. So then in the summer of 2018, the FDA says, well, it turns out we're, we're thinking this disease might be caused by a whole class of pet food products. At the time, they don't really give any data whatsoever, but the media runs with it anyway. And at that point, it caught my attention. I know a thing or two about these things. I know about the, the existing nutritional explanation underlying um, the link between food and uh, DCM in dogs. And from having written my book, I know a lot about the unfortunate 
circumstances under which like scientific veterinary nutritional science is produced in the United States. Specifically, there's this heavy corporate influence, like all the funding for science basically comes out of the pockets of these really massive uh, pet food companies. And it just kind of smelled like that type of thing to me. It's just like, you know, just enough to, to rouse my suspicion about it. And so I started writing about this kind of bizarre little topic to, to some degree in the summer of 2018. Well, things escalated from there. You know, the basically the FDA was calling on consumers to report cases to them of dogs that developed DCM um, that were also eating these kinds of products. And then in the uh, winter of 2018, something else happened to kind of really change the landscape, the public's understanding of this issue. A cluster of veterinarians from some major research institutions, big universities, got together and published this article in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, um, which is like the only veterinary science journal that matters. It's like the, the, the by far the most widely read one. And their article was called Diet Associated Dilated Cardiomyopathy and Dogs. What do we know? And it subject was what you'd expect. It's kind of it runs through what these folks said was the state of the evidentiary record, what we know about the links between diet and dilated cardiomyopathy in dogs. Who the authors were was pretty interesting. They include, there's five authors and three of them are the very same three veterinarians who basically launched the FDA's investigation. If you go to the FDA's website, you'll see their names on there. They're the folks who basically reached out to the FDA and said, um, hey, we think that there's a link between this disease and these kinds of products. These same three people got together and wrote this article. And what the article says, among other things, is that there is an apparent association between dilated cardiomyopathy and a whole big class of products, what the, the authors of the article called BEG diets, boutique, exotic ingredient, or grain-free diets. There's an apparent association between that entire class of products and dilated cardiomyopathy. Now, when I saw that, it really roused my attention for a whole host of reasons. Kind of like one of the most glaring ones is that the numbers seem really, um, like at first glance, seem facially absurd, which is to say that they're basically, you know, right now the FDA has received 500 different-ish different reports of DCM in dogs, okay? So there's 70 million dogs in the United States and somewhere under a thousand of them have been reported to the FDA as having developed dilated cardiomyopathy. BEG diets, if you look at what that means in practical terms, like when, if you just look at the, the, the number of products that are being sold, uh, pet food products being sold in the United States, that's at least 60% of the pet food market. So if you're telling me there's an association between these products and this disease, you're telling me you've been able to tease out that association between something that, you know, 30 plus million dogs are eating and somewhere under a thousand of them are developing this disease. So you got to, you know, you can imagine the kind of statistical analysis that would need to be done in order to establish that kind of evidence. It was clear that hadn't been done. I got all kinds of skeptical about it. I basically spent the next two quarters of my life investigating all of the studies that are cited in this paper that these folks put together. And basically at the end of the day, my the opinion that I developed is um, these people are basically misstating the evidence in a significant way, that the circumstantial evidence suggests that they're doing it 
intentionally. And that this article, which has gone on to be by far the most popular article that Javma has published in the past 12 months, been read more than three times as often as any other article that that journal's ever published, that they ought to retract it. There are, I've written about this subject on a kind of a variety of platforms, the most popular of which being Medium. Um, I wrote an article that's called Big Business and Bad Science are behind the biggest pet food story in a decade. And it walks through the kind of 10 reasons why this article ought to be retracted. And I'll just kind of give you a quick overview of them because we're pushing up on an hour already. Number one, there's zero evidence that DCM is associated with BEG diets, grain-free diets, or any specific ingredients. I've already told you what there is evidence of. There's a scientific record showing those things that I discussed before, this link between cysteine and methionine and, um, and DCM. There's none suggesting these topics. So they, they published this massive article. It's hugely widely read, covered by the New York Times and all these other media organizations, zero evidence whatsoever behind it. You'd think that alone would be a reason to yank this article, that, you know, reason for it to be retracted. There's also no evidence that canine DCM rates have increased in recent years. Kind of the way that these, these veterinarians um, chose to frame this issue is, we're seeing a curious spike in this disease. That, that may be the case. There's no evidence that it's the case, though. There's absolutely no evidence that DCM rates have increased in recent years. There's only anecdotes. Similarly, the third point, it's a really, really rare disease. The best odds say that like your odds of being diagnosed with uh, having a dog diagnosed um, with DCM are basically like the odds of being struck by lightning. For all the attention the issue has gotten, it's an incredibly rare disease that very few dogs are suffering from. Fourth key point is that the folks at the heart of the investigation, these three main veterinarians, one from Tufts University, one from the University of California, Davis, and one who at the time was working at North Carolina State University, these three main folks, all of them have ties to one or more of these same three massive pet food companies that shape the veterinary nutritional dogma in the United States, Hills Pet Nutrition, Mars Pet Care, and Nestle Purina. And these, uh, these three companies share one other thing in common. If you were to try, to, if you take the expression BEG diets, which is the, the, the one I talked about before, that's kind of the core of this article, and you're trying to play out, well, what, what represents a BEG diet? What's a boutique diet? What's an exotic ingredient diet? And you're to cross off every available kind of pet food that falls into this BEG diet category. At the end of the day, you're only left with products produced by three companies. Hills Pet Nutrition, Mars Pet Care, Nestle Purina Pet Care. So these same three companies that have financial connections to the three veterinarians at the heart of the FDA investigation, at the heart of this article, just happen to be the only three companies that are making products today that are not B, E, or G diets, which is quite a coincidence if you ask me. Fifth reason why the article ought to be retracted. It wasn't peer-reviewed, okay? This is the most popular peer-reviewed journal, veterinary peer-reviewed journal in the United States. It's the most popular article that that journal has likely ever published, and it wasn't peer-reviewed. The, the, the editor-in-chief confirmed this to me directly. Basically, the authors got, they were really smart. They recognized there's no evidence, if, if peer-reviewers had looked at this article, and said, is there evidence supporting these statements that are being made? There's no way they would have allowed it to be published. Like I said, there's no evidence supporting these, these uh, assertions. And I, it, you know, it, it seems to me that the 
authors of the piece likely knew this. They, they haven't responded to my questions on it directly, but um, it seems obvious to me. They basically submitted the article as an op-ed. From you know, Javma will publish three types of articles: experimental research, which has to be peer-reviewed, of course; evidence reviews, which have to be peer-reviewed, of course; and op-eds, what they call commentaries. And op-eds are not state, you know, things that analyze the factual state of affairs on some kind of specific scientific topic. They're things about opinions. Is this right? Is this wrong? Should we be practicing this way? Whose interests should we protect? Things that don't lend themselves to factual evidentiary analysis. This wasn't something like that. This is this is literally an article called, What Do We Know? It's a factual article. But nevertheless, the authors got, got smart about it and they called it an op-ed so it never got peer reviewed and it got published in the journal anyway. Reason number six, it should be retracted. There've only been two DCM, over the past five years, only two studies have been published, experimental studies, where, we've, where anyone has looked at the links between DCM and nutrition in dogs. Both of them, the principal investigator in both of them was one of the art. One was the guy from Davis. One was the woman from the North, from North Carolina State University. And both of the um, studies suffer from massive methodological problems. In the case of the one published by the woman from North Carolina State, there's basically a significant case of data scrubbing. They she began by starting off with. Uh, you know, not sure whether I have enough time to go into this, you know, into the weeds of this or not. And you can read all about it on the Medium article. So, but basically, she scrubbed out the data to, in order to make it look like far more dogs with DCM were eating grain-free diets than they really were. The other one, they basically, if you had, if they had controlled for cysteinomethionine content, like the the one thing that every veterinary nutrition researcher should be looking at to explain DCM, like the one thing that's discussed in every textbook, just happens to be one thing they didn't look at. I sent all the foods from their study off to a biochemical lab to kind of like review and tell me how much cysteinomethionine are in them, and it turns out that the low levels of cysteinomethionine can perfectly explain the findings in it. So again, two of these big methodological problems, like glaring massive problems in the two um, studies kind of that, that, that form the backbone of this op-ed. Number eight, like I said before, the numbers don't add up. There's not, if there's 35 million dogs in the United States eating these products and less than a thousand of them are developing this condition, You'd have to do a really in-depth statistical search to try to establish some kind of correlation. That's not there in this case. Number nine, the, the, basically, this we've seen this exact same playbook play out. Anyone who's familiar of like with how the um, kind of veterinary nutritional mainstream has responded to the the, the, the use of raw diets, the, the rise of raw diets in the pet food industry, will tell you that basically the conventional wisdom about this is really simple. It's these products don't provide any benefit and they might very well be dangerous for you and your pets because you might get some kind of um, bacterial pathogen if you don't um, sanitize correctly. The woman who's responsible for that whole perspective, who's gotten stuff in JAVMA saying this exact same thing, is this uh, veterinarian, Dr. Lisa Freeman, the same one from Tufts University, who's the principal author, the corresponding author on the op-ed that I've been talking about. She basically used this same exact playbook to, to kind of describe, to kind of push back against raw diets when they were rising in popularity, using a very similar conceptual playbook now to demonize grain-free uh, pet food products. Lisa Freeman, it is also worth noting, has financial conflicts of interest that she has to disclose on every paper she published with 
all of Hill's Pet Nutrition, Nestle Purina Pet Care, and Mars Pet Care. She is the definition of a corporate shill in um, the pet food industry right now. And the 10th and final reason that I think this article ought to be retracted is there's no evidence of a problem outside the United States. Grain-free pet foods are a global phenomenon that are being consumed by folks um, in, whose pets live in all kinds of different countries. There is no other country where there's any kind of issue being raised about this, which is perfectly inconsistent with what you'd expect to see if there was a true thing. So basically, I wrote all this up into this 50-page, well-documented legal brief, and I went to an academic conference where Lisa Freeman was giving a talk about DCM. When she was done, I walked up to the microphone and I said, I think your article ought to be retracted. Here's why. Handed her this big 50-page brief. She laughed at me. I then passed out copies of the brief to all of the other veterinarians and other folks who were in attendance at the talk. And I told them that if they agreed with the argument I was making, they should come uh, visit this website that I had put up, veterinaryintegrity.org, and co-sign it. They could co-sign these materials and agree with me, and I'm going to be sending them off to the editor-in-chief of the journal about a month later. Well, more than 200 different people came to the website, offered all kinds of comments, and co-signed the letter. This isn't like you know something where I'm a kind of tinfoil hat fringe guy coming up with a, a weird wacko theory. This is a ironclad slam dunk case where this thing ought to be retracted. But it wasn't. I sent it off to um, a guy named Dr. Kurt Matichek, who's the um, editor-in-chief of uh, the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, explaining this case, showing all the different co-signees and comments from all the veterinarians around the country. Um, the journal decided not to budge. They offered no substantive explanation but said they'd refuse to retract the article. There's more to come, so watch this space. If you wanna keep up with this issue, I recommend, you can kind of follow me directly on a variety of fronts. I'm gonna continue fighting, so that's why, I continue, that's why I think you should keep an eye on me. I manage a website that's called veterinaryintegrity.org that kind of over, is, provides an overview of where things stand on this matter right now. You can also read my blog, it's called The Optimal Dog. I write about um, a variety of nutritional science topics there. You can find me, Daniel Shuloff, on, on all kinds of social media. And you can um, get additional resources if you come to the website for Keto Natural Pet Foods. And that's www.ketonaturalpetfoods.com. I'm also going to give Leanne a coupon code for um, users who hear about, if, if you're interested in trying Keto Natural Pet Foods, use the coupon code podcast 20 all caps p-o-d-c-a-s-t the number two the number zero podcast 20 all caps and we'll give you 20 percent off your first order and like i said that's a good place to keep up with some of the, the latest on dcm too and that's where i'm going to draw the line i've gone just over 60 minutes um, i hope you found some of that useful if you want to hit me up for any kinds of questions like i said you have every reason to be skeptical about this stuff great i love it if you have questions for me directly, you'd like me to address, you think it's something I haven't explained well, by all means, reach out. It's daniel at ketonaturalpetfoods.com. Thanks for giving me this opportunity, Leanne. I hope everyone that's listened learned something. I look forward to hearing from you directly. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Next up on the podcast, Sunday, December 8th, we have episode 212 with Sarah Clark on fertility issues and healing. Oh, it's so good. You're going to love it. 
And Wednesday, December 11th, we have episode 213, where I'm chatting about exercising and eating for normal keto people. So you are not an athlete. You just like to move your body and you like to understand how that works with what you're eating and going to the gym and doing the things, but you do not consider yourself to be an athlete. You are a normal keto person. So watch for that and I will see you soon. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. Join us again in a couple of days to discover more Keto for Women secrets for your fat-fueled life. The Keto Diet Podcast, including show notes and links, provides information in respect to healthy living, nutrition, and diet, and is intended for informational purposes only. The information provided is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor should it be construed as such. We cannot guarantee that the information provided on the Keto Diet Podcast reflects the most up-to-date medical research. Information is provided without any representations or warranties of any kind. Please consult a qualified physician for medical advice and always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your health and nutrition program.